Hello and welcome to the RSE's Tea and Talk podcast series, a programme inspired by the coffee houses of the 18th century, where great thinkers would come together to discuss ideas and matters of the day. I'm Rebecca Widderfield and I'm Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, which is Scotland's National Academy. Our mission is to advance learning and make knowledge useful. And to do that, we are holding conversations with some of our fellows and other leading experts in Scotland to talk about important issues and the challenges that we face as a society. You can find out more about our work on our website at rsc.org.uk. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Sandro Carnicelli and Dr. Leslie Maybon about tourism and climate change. Both members of RSC's Young Academy, Sandra is a senior lecturer at the University of the West of Scotland, where he leads work and conducts research on marketing events and tourism, while Leslie is a lecturer in environmental systems at the Open University, looking at the governance of complex environmental issues and how you balance scientific knowledge with social and cultural considerations. So tackling climate change requires us all to think about how we live our lives, how we travel, what we eat, what we buy, what we throw away, and, and I guess how we holiday as, as well, although we maybe get uh, have less attention on that. But Sandra, in, in headline terms, what for you are the main implications of tourism for climate change? Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having us here today and talking to you. It's always a pleasure. Uh, I think uh, one of the interesting things is a lot of people, when they, they hear about tourism and climate change or, or carbon emissions, they think about traveling. And they always associate with airplanes. Um, and, and in reality, tourism and climate change is way bigger than that and involves everything that you just said. is the consumption, it is where you stay, is what you eat, is what you dress. Um, and um, so it, it is way more complex than just um, airplane carbon emissions, even if we recognize that airplane carbon emissions is, is an important point. So I think it's important for us to discuss just now how... Um, the overall contribution of tourism in, in, in a more macro terms is impacting the world, is changing communities and is changing the environment. And, and, and just in terms of that, Leslie, how do you see some of that being played out in the ground on the on the ground in some of the areas that you've been working on? There's I think a number of ways in which climate change and tourism are starting, we're starting to see some of the effects and consequences of that in Scotland to an extent. COVID and what we've seen in the last year and a half, perhaps uh, inadvertently, has given us a kind of speed run of what we might see in the future. So there's a lot of talk about, particularly in the global north and in wealthier parts of the world, like where we live, about how we may have to reduce emissions. And clearly flying international travel for for leisure is a, a large source of that. And so, you know, for, for a number of years, people have been talking about, well, does this mean people may conduct more of their kind of recreational and tourism activities domestically? And I think what we've seen is that whilst that might have positive effects in terms of carbon dioxide emissions on the ground, we then need to think about, well, what does that mean in terms of bigger environmental and ecological effects for the places that might be picking up some of those visitors. So just to give you a very quick example, I live in Oban, in the west of Scotland. We've actually not seen a reduction really in the number of tourists that we have because we've maybe lost international visitors, but we've probably picked up, anecdotally at least, a lot of people that otherwise might be going overseas. Campsites perhaps don't have the capacity to deal with more 
camper vans, larger vehicles coming in. You maybe have people who, through no fault of their own, haven't had the exposure to the sort of knowledge and education about how to visit a, a rural or wilderness environment, which creates problems around waste. You maybe have more vehicle transportation, which has other pollution aspects. So there's that tension to be balanced and to be thought about between maybe the global emissions of flying, which is the most obvious thing we think about when it comes to climate change and tourism, and these other environmental and ecological and social impacts for the places that are picking up the slack. It's interesting you're saying that, uh, Leslie, because... Um... Uh, when I mentioned that the complexities of uh, of, uh, of tourism and, and, and environment is all about that, is a, a lot. We think a lot about the long haul flights. As I said, is very important, but there is a lot of other uh, problems in terms of emissions that uh, are, are we think as a secondary. But the more I, I work with students, the more we realize, for example, fast fashion is a is a increasingly problem of tourism because people go. To travel, they decide to go traveling, and they, you know, go for fast fashion brands to, um, to just for that occasion. So when we think about the impacts on communities and the impacts on, um, on uh, of tourism in, in in coastal communities or in the environment, we're also talking about the volume of waste produced, and in many cases, this waste is is new waste. It's not old waste. It's like new waste generated in Oban, for example, because actually the volume of tourists arriving is, is not lower. It's actually bigger because of the domestic market is rediscovering the places. It sounds like, I mean, what you're both saying is this is, this is much more complex than emissions from travel. Um, it's emissions from a, a lot of other things as well. And it's actually more complex than, than emissions as well in terms of the wider environmental impacts. So, I mean, do we need to change the way we think about and talk about tourism? I think so. I think we proposed recently in a paper that we wrote um, that um, we need to look to environmental justice. We do need to look to social justice, and we also need to look to the ethics of care. Um, so trying to look to how much we care for the communities, how much we care for the environment, how much we cared for the planet, uh, but also thinking about the actions that we do, the way we consume things nowadays. And when you're thinking about now, it's very easy to talk about consumption and thinking about a sandwich or something that is tangible. But when you're talking about consumption of experiences, we are also um, I need to understand that it is not tangible, but there's still uh, a significant impact. Uh, and that environmental impact is important in terms of, uh, of, of the experiences that we do and what we actually decide to, to buy in terms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, visiting places or visiting uh, locations and areas. So for, for me, I think we need to look to tourism under different environmental perspectives, social justice perspective, but also in terms of um, the care in our relationships with the communities, with each other and with the world. Thanks, Sandra. And, and Leslie, I think that's been sort of quite a focus of your work is that balancing, as I said in my introduction, of the sort of, the, I guess, the scientific dimension, but also those social and cultural considerations. So that's complex stuff. How do you balance those different dimensions? I mean, I suppose in very general terms, one of the ways I would think about that is, and it's going to sound like something that I'm just trying to promote my own work, but the importance, I think, of getting social sciences and humanities and arts perspectives into how we think about sustainability right from the start. So, I mean, I've... I've 
kind of been, been something that kind of has frustrated me and you still see strands of it, that social sciences somehow tend to be thought of as almost as an afterthought when we do scholarship on climate change and sustainability. And we, you know, we agree the hard science and we agree the engineering and technical solutions. I mean, the role of social sciences come, becomes about how you then convince the public of a particular course of action um, or, you know, how you then find public attitudes to a problem. And maybe sustainable tourism, actually. I mean, I've, I've been learning little bits about this in the last couple of years, and I think it represents this very well. So from, from as I understand it, and Sandra might correct me, you know, I've seen lots of things in the past, maybe from a kind of tourism perspective that have looked at sort of people's awareness of environmental issues and public attitudes to landscapes and littering and things like that. But then more recently, if you look at a lot of the sustainable tourism literature, it deals in much more depth with these questions of what kind of society do we want to live in? What kind of economy do we want to run? Do we even want to challenge some of the assumptions about constant economic growth? So I guess from a, from a kind of scholarly and research perspective, it's, it's embedding these big questions about, you know, what is our destination point, embedding these in a research and scholarship agenda right from the outset so that, you know, you're not coming in with a kind of predetermined strategy and then trying to assess public attitudes to it, but rather that you've got ecologists, environmental scientists, social scientists, humanities working together and working in collaboration with communities, in fact, to understand that right from the outset. I appreciate that's much easier said than done, but that's the sort of direction of travel, if you'll excuse the pun at the moment. But it's interesting, Leslie, because that's exactly what we are starting to look more in, in tourism research. A lot of the past tourism research focus on tourists, right? So tourism, tourist. And actually, what we need to go back a little bit is to look to the concept of hospitality. You can only be tourist there is someone hosting you and welcoming you. And who is welcoming you? Is the community? Is the environment? Is It, it is the location? And when you start to think of and, and shift that, that angle, then you start to value way more, actually, well, that's my house. This is my environment. This is my beach. This is my coast. This is where the community is placed. You are coming here. Let's work together to maintain and preserve that because in two days' time, you're going to go back home but I'm, I'm left with all your rubbish, right? Or, or with all your impact. So when you start to actually shift the narrative from actually the privilege and the hedonism of, of the tourists and move that towards um, the local communities and the rights of local communities for a safe environment, a clean environment, um, you know, um, um, an economic viable environment even, that's, that's how we kind of start to, to change. Now, there's a lot of changes in terms of how we see society and how we live society and how we consume that are impacting on all, all, in all of that. So some of the data, for example, show that in Scotland, uh, there is uh, two times more people on domestic tourism going to self-catering than using hotels. So what does that mean is a lot of these people are using uh, websites that rent houses and second houses and things like that. Um, and, and that can be interesting, but can also be problematic considering the changes that it, it creates in, 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 in the economics of the location in terms of the prices of houses and so on, right? Um, so 
all these changes that we see now with the sharing economy, with the experience economy, will also impact on our relationship with the environment. And I think we need to rethink that because when we shift from tourists to community, to hospitality, then we start to see in a different angle our relationship with the environment as well. I mean, that's really interesting. And I, I maybe should hold my hands up having come back from a self-catering holiday uh, uh, in, in near Fort William a, f- a few weeks ago. But actually, what was really interesting about that was a self-catering cottage was it was probably the first time I'd seen a statement which I can't remember if it was called about a responsible tourism, but it was actually was locating you in, in you know, re- reminding you you were coming to a local community and to sort of be ca- be caring about that. And, and the parts of me when I read that thinking, well, I'm really sorry that people need to be told this, you know, but actually it was very, it was very well done in terms of actually getting you to think maybe a little bit more broadly around the environment in which you're coming into. But but I, I guess there is that sense of, you know, tourism has historically been seen as a positive thing. It's understanding, it's getting new experiences, it's um, getting to know different places, getting to know different cultures. It helps your understanding of the world. How do we sort of, I guess, balance the, the positivity of tourism? Because I don't think either of you are saying we shouldn't have tourism, but how do we make tourism, I guess, sustainable then? Actually, what do we need to do in, in concrete concrete terms? Leslie, what would be the key things from your perspective? I think just, just to follow up on, um, on um, Sandra's comments before and also your own experience recently, the big issue in Scotland, I think, that we face is how you can ensure that some of the positives some of the benefits actually accrue to local communities themselves and don't become counterproductive. And again, anecdotally, you know, all across the, the north of Scotland and then the west of Scotland and the areas where I live, we see you know, an awful lot of properties that would become affordable housing for young families becoming not just second homes, but also short-term lets by the lets. I mean, it's even happening in, in, in Edinburgh and Glasgow as well. You know, we saw during COP26 people charging up to £12,000 a week to let, to let flats out for, for the week. So there's, a, there's a, a real concern, I think, particularly around where people stay. And so as Sandro says, a lot more now, Airbnb, even Booking.com, have re, you know completely transformed the way in which we go about doing tourism. You know, we can now curate our own, our own travel, our own experiences. That's fabulous because it allows people to maybe do a lot more than they could have before. But the whole other side of that is that it, it does lead to that whole situation where people will buy up properties to profiteer, you know, and then that, that then can make economies dependent on tourism and can make it hard for young people who might have skills and talents and capabilities to, to stay there. So, I mean, one thing I would like to see is the Scottish government and maybe also local authorities, you know, being emboldened to be that little bit braver or maybe really enforcing some of the, the, the issues around how we think about council taxation and uh, property ownership and things like that. Just so that, you know, you don't want to stop people travelling. You don't want to, you also you don't want to stop people making a living out of supporting tourism. You know, if people want to run hotels or do bed and breakfasts or even do short-term lets, we shouldn't stop that. But we maybe need some of our regulators to be a little bit braver to ensure that that doesn't become extractive and that that doesn't result in a few people profiteering in a way that's quite detrimental to a locality. I think that's it, and I think, I, and I think that's it. And I think it's the, the issue of leakage as well. Is you know, 
Um, in terms of economics, it's very difficult to think about that without excluding the economic aspect. And whenever you have communities where the leakage of the economic impact goes overseas for um, multinational organizations or online websites and things like that, that obviously reduce the economic impact on the community. So one of the things that we see, what I always believe is tourism to be really responsible, sustainable, needs to be led by the local communities. Needs to be led because they are the ones who will stay behind. And then you do a process of education of them that, well, that's that's your location, that's your place. If you destroy, you're going to be left without, without that, right? So that's one of the issues that I think Leslie mentioned is the diversification of the economy. So governments need to encourage a diversified economy, not a reliable only tourism, because that's not, you know, is is not good for the future. But you also need to give ownership to the organizations to maximize obviously economic benefit in terms of reducing the leakage instead of not only increasing the number of tourists. Because obviously, if you have, if you lose a lot of the money that drains out of the city, then you want, you keep trying to increase the number of tourists to be able to, to maintain some kind of benefit to the community. Now, when you reduce the drainage to, of that economic benefit, and then the, the local community will need less tourists and will be able to manage and sustain that in a, in a more um, um, coherent way, but also environmentally friendly way. So as soon as you educate the community and give them the partnership to, to, to uh, make the decisions informed by, as Leslie said, interdisciplinary approach with ecologists, biologists, and, and impact assessments, then you start to change the narrative. So, you know, we still can have tourism. You know, even if I wrote about the growing of tourism, it's not that I want the end of tourism. You know, what I want is a tourism that doesn't destroy the world, because if this destroy the world, there's no more tourists, there's no, no more human beings, there's nothing left. So what we need to think is, okay, work with the community, work with policymakers to make sure the communities maximize as much as they can, but also remember that they need to diversify the economy. The economies that that COVID struggled more are the economies that didn't diversify before, right? And that's because, you know, places um, or islands that relied extremely on tourism in the past with the restrictions of COVID, you know, really struggled, um, you know, uh, in terms of social aspects. So I think we need to really start to think about um, the complexity of tourism in terms of economic impacts, environmental impacts, and um, and what's what will be for the future with um, with the pressures on the on, on the Mother Earth. I mean, it sounds like what, what you're almost talking about is some form of just transition. I mean, which we've sort of very much um, sort of talked about in terms of oil and gas and increasingly the agricultural sector, but. What does a just transition look like for, for the tourism sector? How do we get that balance of um, tourism supporting rural areas, but doing so in such a way that ensures a sustainable future and supports fair and decent work? Leslie? You must have read my mind because I was just about to come in there before you started speaking and say, well, you know, when we talk a lot about COVID and, and what we learned from it, in some ways, though, COVID is almost the exact opposite of what we want and what we need for climate change because, you know, it's a very rapid sudden shock that resulted in a kind of big change, some of which is temporary, some of which is permanent. But in many ways, it was completely unjust because it was completely unplanned for. You know, whole industries and sectors were effectively shut down overnight. Okay, you have furlough and various subsidies and things like that, but there's no planning, nothing in place. So one, I think you know, when we talk about what we can learn from COVID, 
we've got to be extremely cautious in that, you know, we need to think, well, this wasn't necessarily planned. It wasn't just. And, you know, a lot of people, had it not been for some of these furlough schemes, would have been out of work overnight. Nonetheless, you know, climate change, we don't have long to act. And we need to start planning now for, for what comes next. And, you know, it may well be, like I said, start that in a, a net zero world, we have more um, domestic and local travel, leisure, recreation. How do we ensure that our, um, our communities are able to deal with that? Um, how do we ensure that you have people with the skills and capabilities to be able to maximise that and create value locally? You know, if, if you've also maybe got places within Scotland, and again, just talking anecdotally, that maybe do rely quite heavily on um, international visitors coming in, and they're not going to have those anymore. So, you know, again, you maybe see people saying, okay, Edinburgh, Glasgow, the streets are dead now, COP26 aside, you don't have the international visitors that you did before. What does that mean five, ten years in a, in a, a lower carbon world with less international travel? What does that mean for the people in the places that have thus far relied on international visitors? Can you use some of those skills to do other things? Good example of that, just a very quick one. So um, when the pandemic hit and a lot of international travel stopped, uh, all Nippon Airways in Japan um, discovered they had a lot of cabin crew who weren't able to work anymore because there were no planes flying. But they discovered that because of the skills that their cabin crew had in things like customer service, they were very good at dealing with the public, at resolving conflicts. And so they found that they were able to work in not just in retail, but in a lot of businesses and banks in, in kind of working between departments and able to, to, to work with people. So another one as well, the railways in Austria, taking cabin crew out of airlines and getting them working in Austrian railways. Two great examples of how the skill sets that you have in tourism can be redeployed in, in other areas. I mean, I don't know, Sandro, if you know any more with, with, with more kind of a research background than me, what a just transition might look like for tourism. I think there's one thing that we need to be con that the, and I agree with you that COVID wasn't really uh, any example of, of just a moment considering, you know, like people you know, like different social classes struggled in different ways and we need to acknowledge that. Um, I think in tourism is the same. I think one of the things that concerns me in terms of tourism and, and the change is that tourism will become uh, a product for the elites. So the elites will be able to afford and will be able to pay for whatever. I know if it's a thing about we can compensate the carbon footprint if we pay, right? Um, and, and I think that's one of the concerns that will become going back to uh, to become a, a, a leisure activity of the elites. So we need to be careful in, in, in how we move forward with tourism, making sure that actually it's just, and that there are options and there are now a lot of policymakers and people thinking about how we deal with that, right? Um, and that may be, for example, Eye of Sky, if there's over-tourism there, um, should we actually create a system that is an entry system that is not based on price, but in other alternatives of allowing X number of people, which is the carrying capacity of the place to allow to enter without being based only on the economic aspect of it. So I think that is one of the challenges we have in terms of the tourism industry ahead uh, and, and trying to not go back to 
um, the over-tourism um, mass impact that they had before is to think about how we can actually move for a, a, a more sustainable approach, but without excluding people uh, based on economic aspect. And that's a challenge that is not easy to solve. Um, um, but I think there is a lot of opportunities there to think about creatively about how we actually um, um, allow everyone to, to enjoy the, the, the beauties of, of traveling and tourism in a just way and, and, and fair way. And just one thing I would just add very briefly to that, and you talked there about the, the, the economics, and it almost goes to this, this bigger question. You know, we, we see a lot of new economic models being talked about now about donut economics or well-being economies where you, you have this idea that the kind of ideal space for societal living doesn't exceed the ecological and environmental boundaries, but um, also you know, respects the fact that we have to live. So it's maybe going from thinking about pounds, shillings, and pence to instead thinking about well, what are the social, what is the social value? You know, what are the much broader ranges of social value that we can get out of tourism? And that, that again, that's a hard question, but that's I think that that's one way that we need to kind of get beyond that purely kind of pound, shilling, and some pence valuation of a tourism. And there's clearly lots of these discussions and, and research and thinking going on in academia. I, I guess it's it's how much is that conversation is going on with local governments, with communities? I mean, you talked about the importance of regulation. You talked about the importance of needs being led by local communities. You know, certainly in the climate change debate, tourism doesn't seem to be up front and central, apart from long-haul flights and, and, and aeroplanes and emissions from that. How much are these conversations starting to happen um, on the ground, if you like, Sandra? It is. It is. I think that is... Um lots of new initiatives in New Zealand. New Zealand is always, you know, ahead of the time. It's unbelievable how how, how well they do in, in, in that aspect. Um, but I think New Zealand has lots of examples of that. One is the voice of the Maori community, community and indigenous community in own, owning the land and, 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 and having the voice on that. The other thing that they are doing is the calculation of carbon footprint of the tourists. So one of the plans they have is, okay, you know, you came here, where, you know, you go, where do you go? How did you go to the places? And then you're going to have um, um, attacks after that, right? Which can be complicated based on the things that we said before. But one of the debates they had uh, not long ago in New Zealand was um, the Minister of, of Tourism, if I'm not wrong, uh, said that uh, they didn't want backpackers anymore. Because backpackers was a problem. They didn't contribute enough. They, you know, they created rubbish everywhere. And actually, all the evidence from all the tourism professors there is actually the backpackers are the ones who have less impact, right? Because one, they contribute to the economy because a lot of them will end up working, right? And their actual impact on the environment is minimal compared to cruise ships arriving in hundreds of thousands of people and, and, and polluting the oceans and um, leakage of money and drainage of money and, you know, lower consumption and chaos. So actually there is that perception that um, depending on the type of tourism, oh, you know, if you if you are wealthy and you can pay for a cruise ship, then you, oh, you know, you, you find you welcome. But it is a very misperception of the types of tourism we have when actually backpackers contribute significantly to small shops, local shops, local economy, you know, instead of large brands, big brands, multinational brands that will not actually 
give enough to the to the local communities. So um, I think there's a lot of those changes happening in New Zealand in terms of policy. So that is a direct engagement with not only research and academics, but also with policymakers in terms of how they're going to just adjust transition there for people. Okay, if you want to come to New Zealand, these are the rules, you know, um, and, and this is how much you're going to contribute for us to keep and set certain level of control. Obviously, New Zealand is, is um, um, has its benefits because it's quite of isolated in terms of distance uh, and, and it's an island and all these characteristics. It's, 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 very, it's much harder, for example, if you think about Europe um, and the flow of people in Europe and the mobility of people. But I think there is a movement towards, a, let's say, a smarter way of traveling and a fairer way of traveling as well that we'll see and needs to be implemented sooner rather than later in, 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 in large centres like Europe. And are you seeing some of that in Scotland, Leslie? Yeah, no, I think that's a really super point. Again, I was just going to pick up on that, that uh, New Zealand is maybe a good example and you have maybe a longer history of backpackers, as Sandra was just saying. You have a longer history of people maybe travelling, going there, spending a few months and as a former colleague of mine always used to say, one of the things you find with the kind of backpackers and in inverted comma is that there's almost a badge of honour in doing things as cheaply as you can. And there's almost like it becomes a badge of honour. And so in, in that sense, sometimes the kind of ecological footprint can be quite light and that the, the, these kind of people will be more willing and able to engage with communities. The only caution I'd put on that is when you get into the global south into less well-off countries, you know, that can sometimes lead to problems around haggling and, and, and trying to get things as cheaply as possible in a way that, that becomes detrimental to, to people who are trying to make a living. In Scotland, we maybe don't have such a big tradition of, of that kind of travel. I mean, we've always had people who've come to walk and do things like the West Highland Way, go up mountains and things like that. But we maybe don't have such a same tradition of people coming and, and, and moving about in that way. And again, just to think a little bit about COVID and to think about the environment, what we saw, I think, last year is that we really need maybe some of that, that kind of almost education and awareness raising of the kind that they have in places like New Zealand and indeed of what you saw in the, uh, in the, the, the place you stayed in near Fort William, that... You, you just a bit of awareness raising of what it means to go into a community and what it means to travel there. So, you know, we, we all heard the horror stories last summer of people pulling down fence posts around crofts to make a bonfire that they could then put on Instagram and, you know, people disposing of their rubbish and ditches and things like that. And so I think that's really important. You know, you don't want to vilify people and you absolutely don't want to make value judgments about what a good tourist or a desirable visitor is versus what they are not. But at the same time, I think there is a need for, for a bit of that kind of awareness raising about what visiting a place sustainably means and whether that starts with, you know, the, the advice you get when you make your booking, whether it starts with trying to get some of that into the, the media, whether it even starts with trying to get some of that education back into schools. In a way, you know, we people of my generation and older maybe remember some of the countryside, you know, codes and things that we learned at school. 
Duke of Edinburgh's award, things like that. You know, that we, we learned a lot of that stuff. Getting some of that maybe back into curricula and getting the people who are going to be the travellers and consumers of tomorrow to think about, you know, the impacts of what they do might go a long way to, to learning from places like New Zealand that have a longer history of uh, working with these backpacker-type visitors. I think there is a difference also in terms of um, of timing, right? So there is a whole theory about slow tourism, right? And I, I see that when, when we were young, growing back in Brazil, my dad would take four weeks of holiday and then we would travel for four weeks and so on. Nowadays, a lot of the holidays we see is very short term. So like the average time that domestic tourists will come to the highlands is three days. So they'll travel two or three days back. So it's very short, lots of short holidays, right? And we see that as well. When I came here uh, to Scotland, like I start to realize the number of flights. And I'm talking about flights, I said, but there's always, it's more than that. But the number of flights my, my, my students or colleagues will take to go to Europe a year. And that was like three, four, five holidays a year, short holidays. And that's problematic as well. So the way we do tourism, the way we think tourism is also different. Um, so instead of having, and I think a lot of, there's a lot of social changes and organizations that don't support that, right? There was a point universities were saying, oh, you cannot take more than three weeks holiday at one time, right? And it's like, okay, but, but you know, if I want to have a minimum full time with my family, why cannot I take you know, four weeks of, you know, which actually my carbon footprint may be lower because actually is, is lower tourism is, you know, one place and enjoy and so on. While now, you know, I think, so there is a, it's a whole chain of, of issues that we have now that doesn't um, contribute for people to taking it slow and 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 take it low in terms of carbon. So slow and low in terms of, of emission. Uh, and I think we need to to I think there's significant changes that we need to do in society to to allow things to be different if we want to be a little bit more sustainable. That's a really super point. And I'm just going to pick up on that very quickly with a, a personal example. So um my wife is Japanese, and that means that family visits uh, entail a long haul flight. And that, that poses a real ethical conundrum when we think about personal carbon footprints, carbon shadows, and, and responsibility. Um, so, what, one of the things that we'd like to try and think about is how to kind of ensure that we're doing as much as we can in relation to the emissions that we make. And exactly as Sandro said, what we like to try and do then is, okay, if, if my wife's going to visit her family, can I do some field work? Can I do some research at the same time? Can I visit some, some colleagues as well? So that, that we're not just going for a week. But again, that requires a lot of support and flexibility in, in, from, from, from employers in terms of how we think about our work and how we think about travel. So Again, I appreciate that I'm in a very privileged position to be able to do that, but but it's, it's, it maybe does illustrate how you know we maybe get away from this idea of going lots of places very quickly and think more differently about you know the value that we get from from travelling. I think it illustrates the complexity again, doesn't it? Because I was thinking, you know, when you were talking there, you know, I might have thought before I went to um, near Fort William. Well, um, we went out for meals a couple of times there. We bought all our shopping at the local shops. Um, we're hill walkers, so we didn't, you know, we were always very careful about how we walk and things like that. So I might have thought that was a good thing to do. But I also go on other places, go hill walking, and maybe my footprint then becomes higher than actually if I'd taken one international 
international flight. And I know you don't want to get into sort of good and bad tourism, but it but it is complex even for individuals who are wanting to make sustainable choices. I think so. And I think, but I think there is a lot of this. I think there is also the whole society of Instagram when it's cool to take more photos in more places and travel. This bucket, the idea of bucket list. So I had friends, for example, who had the dream to travel to 100 countries before they are 30. So all these things that sounds, at some point it sounded very appealing. And it maybe still sounds very appealing. But then when you conflict that with the current climate emergency, it's like, I would love to do that. But but my desire cannot be bigger than the crisis, the environmental crisis that we live. You know, and sometimes we need to compromise our own wishes and our own desires towards a, a bigger and better good. Um, so I think that is, uh, you know, there's a point about Leslie said in terms of um, uh, education process that is important that we reflect and teach the, you know, the children and the new generation of consumers. Um, but I think that is also something that needs to be done in, in, in terms of public policy, because if not, it becomes very, very conflicting narrative. So I met someone yesterday uh, or two days ago here, and she said like, oh, you know, this COP26 is interesting because people are wanting to make me feel guilty for taking my holiday while they're all flying their own personal private jets up and down and enjoying their freedom. And, and, and there's a point on that, right, uh, in terms of, okay, if, if, if we want the contribution of the society, you know, it needs to be tackled also to some of the privileges of, of the top of the, of, of the ranking row. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, we all need to kind of really reflect how we are consuming things instead of just pointing out to the guilty of the person who is taking one holiday a year. Absolutely. I mean, and I'm really interested, Sandra, you mentioned Instagram there, and it makes me think about, about social media. And there's one very strange genre of YouTuber that I've come across recently and have kind of been sucked into because it's horrific and yet also bizarre. And that is, they're called EV geeks. You know, people that fly around the world not to go to places, but they fly around the world for the purpose of experiencing different aeroplanes and airlines and the food and the airports. I mean, like, you know, aeroplanes, okay, I can understand people might be interested in the engineering, you know, the, the technology, but without wanting to, again, kind of create hierarchies and dichotomies, you think there are maybe some types of travel and tourism that are perhaps less sustainable than others. You know, and if rather than maybe picking on people who are taking one holiday a year to, to you know, to get a break, you might think, okay, well, is that really compatible with a net zero world to be flying around the place purely to show everybody what plain food looks like um, while you then get to the airport and then turn around and, uh, and come back home again? So is it this very bizarre form of, 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 of travel? Yeah, sorry, on you go. And now that's it. And, and, that's, and, then, and, and we need to also have the discussion about the responsibility of those airlines the responsibility of the large chains of hotels in terms of their contribution uh, to, to the impact. So all these things, you know, um, one thing people will say, well, if there is consumer for that product, then we should have, but there are something of, in terms of sharing responsibility in terms of, you know, um, um, yeah, the companies, 
you know, and their roots and and and, and their incentive. You know, like people say, uh, and people people celebrate more and more um, airline routes. You know, people look to, to people look to the flight rather with all those yellow flights around the world, and they get amazed in a positive sense instead of being horrified. <laughs> by the number of planes we have around the skies just now. Um, so, um, so I think there is a need, there is a, a huge need to change of narrative, change of policy, ownership of local communities if, uh, if we want to um, if, if we want to contribute a little bit more and, and, and make tourism a little bit more sustainable. It's funny actually, I've just written down changing the narrative because it sounds like that's a lot of what you're talking about is having we're both having more of the narrative and the conversations across society and across communities at different levels, but also changing what we what we talk about when we talk about tourism and what we what we think about. I mean, we are recording this during the during COP twenty six. Um, there's obviously various commitments that have already been made, but for for the two of you, if you had one wish, and I'll be very generous, you can have one wish each. But if you had one wish um, in terms of a, a, you know a positive outcome in terms of tourism and, and climate change. What would you wish to see different in the in the future? And, and maybe Leslie, I can come to you first. I think simply what I would like to see is a much more explicit and formal recognition of the environmental and social damage that us in the, the, the wealthier countries can cause to the global south. So clearly that's being really talked about in COP26 in terms of trying to get the wealthier nations to legally and formally agree to recognise and support loss and damage. But I think we can extend that as well to to tourism as well. And actually some sort of formal recognition that when people travel, visit can be good, but it can also be extractive. And whether that's then setting up mechanisms for ensuring that whatever comes in from taxing from aviation emissions then maybe goes to countries in the global south to support with their adaptation and with also their building resilience, or whether it then comes through having some of these these links between countries that ensure that when people go to places that they're they're educated and they're informed before they go and that they're, they're working in a way that actually leaves a positive legacy behind them. So I would like to see my wish is proper, formal, legally binding recognition of the responsibilities that we have to less wealthy parts of the world. Thanks, Leslie. And for you, Sandra? I agree with Leslie. I think also there is a need to recognise the excessive, unnecessary and wasteful consumption of rich societies and rich classes um, and the damage that that causes. For me, a lot of of the environmental impacts we have nowadays is due to excessive, unnecessary cons- levels of consumption. Um, and um, you know, when you go to countries of global south, as mentioned by Leslie, the levels of consumption is not even close to the levels of consumption that we saw in the global north. And I talk about that student, to my students. You know, my my mom had the same washing machine that she had when she got married so that was like 40 years ago with the same washing machine you go to other countries and we see a constant renewal of tvs washing machines and everything else so i think unless we really target wasteful unnecessary consumption 
um, I, I think we'll struggle to solve um, the environmental puzzle. It's, it's always what we say is like when you look to tourism, and I've been doing some tourism, um, some work with um, tourism in uh, extreme environments, which is whenever you end up using all the natural resources, there is nothing left. So if you keep using the natural resources, then there is a point that those are gone. And that is valid for oil, is valid, is, is valid for lithium, is valid for any, any natural resources that we are wasting because we overconsume. Um, so I think that is something that I would like to see is a high focus on how we, how we tackle accessible consumption. Well, we've still got a, a week of uh, COP26 to go to, so let's see what comes out of that. And more importantly, I think what actually gets implemented on the back of any commitments that are made. Dr. Leslie Maybon and Dr. Sanjo Carnicelli, thank you so much for sparing your time to talk with us today and for sharing your expertise about tourism and climate change and the wider environmental impacts. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find previous Tea and Talk episodes on our website, rsc.org.uk, or you can subscribe on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. For our latest news, details of events and activities, search for the Royal Society of Edinburgh on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube.